welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. Maybe you know the difference between a pilsner and an ale, but you don't know the difference between Baroque music and music from the classical era. Or maybe you've got that covered, but you have no idea what to order at a brewery. This is part one of a two-part crash course series about beer and musical eras. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. What's up, Emily Reese? Uh, not much. It's a nice autumn day here in the Twin Cities, and so we're going to drink some beer and, and do some crash coursing on some stuff. Yeah, you've asked me before. Mm-hmm. Others have asked me before. What's the difference between a lager and an ale? Mm-hmm. Which I feel like is, it has a fairly basic answer, but we'll, we'll dive a little deeper. But I think yeah. it'll be a, a great way for people to... Um, to realize those differences and then appreciate even more um, a very a very simple divide in the two most popular beer styles in the world. Well, actually, the two only beer styles in the world. Wait, really? Well, in terms of like a broad category, you have a lager and then you have hundreds of styles of lagers. And then ales, you have hundreds of styles of ales and then sub-styles of ales. Okay. So So there's really there's pilsners and there's ales. No, there are loggers. There's loggers. And then okay. there are ales. So there's loggers and there's ales. Correct. And every kind of beer I have, like an IPA or something, fits into one of those two categories. Correct. Love it. And okay. you are gonna crash course us on what? Uh, three of the six musical eras. And how did how did you slash we choose those three? I mean, there was a grand conversation. <laughs> there was a grand <laughs> conversation. I'm like, I can't do this in one episode. Bah, bah. How and can I do this? I can't do this well. I'm like, we I can't do it do properly. I would say heated, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like one of us was trying to convince the other of anything. I was, I just, you know, if I want to do this right and well, then I couldn't. First of all, manage all six in one episode. And second of all, we aren't doing this in all one episode. We're going to do more. So hopefully, takes, next, hopefully next week. Yeah, the, nec- the next week. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the differences in how you can hear the differences between the music from the Baroque era, music from the classical era, and music from the Romantic era. And then you and I are both going to spend some time on the modern era later because, um, of course, for, from my standpoint, the modern era breaks down into about 7,000 different subsets of music in the 20th century. And I'll take some beer styles that they're really hard to tell what they are because they might drink light, but they drink like an ale or something like that. Yeah. And we'll, we'll dive deeper into the land of lagers and ales. Yeah, nice. Beautiful. So, yeah, that's pretty much uh, how it's going to go down. So, Well, do you want to, like, pounce back one... And the other, I have four beers for us to taste today, two yeah. lagers and two ales. Yeah. So what, what do you say if we taste one lager, mm-hmm. we bounce the Romantic era, or excuse me, we bounce to the Baroque Broke. era, yeah. and then we, we tit for tat, back yeah, and forth. I, I love it. Let's do it. 
I am thirsty. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> and hungry. So let's at least get some calories in there. <laughs> Word. Uh, by the way, uh, humans have been consuming alcohol so long yeah, for so many millennia yeah. that actually our livers are able to break down enzymes into energy. So it's not merely that we are ruining our brain cells and getting happy, but that we can take the calories from this beer and do something with them, like create this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. That's great. <laughs> well, so I'll very briefly talk about what makes a lager a lager before we drink this beautiful quintessential lager that is done in a Pilsner style. So um, the differences between a lager and an ale is a lager is fermented at with bottom fermenting yeasts versus an ale that is fermented with top fermenting yeasts. Now, granted, there are exceptions to those rules, but the easiest way to remember that is there are three letters in top and three letters in ale. So the bottom fermenting yeasts, what happens is at cooler temperatures, you have a longer fermentation, just like with wine. Mm-hmm. And so those um, those bottom fermenting yeasts, once they they settle down and they're doing their activity, mm-hmm. they have they produce because they're doing it low and slow, mm-hmm. they produce um, aromatics that aren't necessarily as wild as ales are. They tend to be, that's why when you have a clean, a quote unquote clean, restrained lager, that's because of the yeasts that are that are used and the fact that it's at a cooler temperature. Okay. Whereas an ale is going to be top fermenting. We'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a, in a short bit. They think that this type of, f- f- because ales have been made since time almost immemorial, right? We, we know that ever since the beginning of fermentation as we know it, it was likely some sort of hybrid or some sort of ale that was, you know, fermented at ambient room temperatures because there okay. wasn't refrigeration. Okay. And we think that somewhere in southern Germany, in Bavaria specifically, mm-hmm. people learned that it, it maybe around the 14th century or so that certain yeasts, if you lagered a beer, lagered meaning stored, if you stored a beer and cellared it at a cooler temperature, you'd get like a cleaner beer. Okay. And just through the hybridizing of, you know, yeasts morph through time. So, and they didn't know about yeasts until the 18, late 1800s, like to separate yeast to make that style of beer or that kind of wine. They knew that um, in, in about the 14th centuries when they think this hybridized style of yeast came around. And finally in the late 1800s, and with the advent of refrigeration, we see this like separating of yeast to make this style of beer we're going to taste today. We see, oh wow, with refrigeration and the industrial revolution, we can we can ferment and store beer at cooler temperatures to make a lager. Nice. So let's crack this open. That's long, long overdue. <laughs> That was very uneventful. <laughs> well, we, we it caught it. It was just a little... Pss. We caught it. It was a... <laughs> so I'm pouring it in the proper glass. Which looks like... It's very... It's um, a little bit wider than a tube, and it gets just a little bit higher as we go up, Pilsner Urkel. Um, I know that they're also um, a lot of times in 
the Czech Republic, they are brewed and or they're served in like a kind of a mug, sort of a stein. But so we're in the heart of Bohemia. Excellent. This is in the town of Pilsen. And these guys have been brewing this same style of beer since literally like the, the late um, or mid 1800s. So give it a taste. Emily, tell me what you okay. think. So Pilsners and lagers mm. in general, you know, you have this like because the yeast is down below doing its work and it's cool temperatures and it's mm-hmm. low and slow, we're not <laughs> – Emily drinks like half the glass. What? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get a good taste, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, but so um, do you notice that this doesn't smell necessarily very yeasty? Like a hef- people say I don't like a Hefeweizen. Mm. A lot of times what people don't like is that banana clovey. Like okay. you notice that you don't smell – you. S- and you'll notice this more when we smell the other beer. Okay. They're not yeast-driven. They're more focused on their hops. Okay. And their malt profile. Malty. Malty, but not dark. No. Just like... No, it's delicious. It's little, very refreshing. Yeah, they use sauce. I like a Pilsner, though, I've learned. Yeah. A good they, one. They, like, have this nice, kind of plentiful amount of bitterness, um, which yeah. some people don't think lagers... They don't. They think of hops. Um, excuse me, IPAs as being bitter. Sure. But pilsners, if they're done right, they actually are quite bitter as well. Okay. Um, I don't know. So, what do you think? I think it's delicious. Yeah, I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. I've never had a pilsner or a kel, and I'm grateful to have it. We we love uh, as a as a house favorite here at Scores and Pours. We love the bent paddle from Duluth Venture Pills. Yeah. How would this compare? Do you think? Um, I feel like the Venture Pills um, from Bent Paddle is like maybe this might not be the right word, but it, it feels creamier in my mouth. Okay, like the effervescence is maybe a little bit different. Yeah. Okay. But I don't. I don't like this one better or worse or anything. I like this quite a, quite a lot compared to the Venture Pills. I like them both. It takes a lot longer to brew lager because you have to store it for a while. Typically, if it's a really quality product, it's like six weeks, whereas, Mm. you know, the macro lagers of America are usually cutting corners and doing it at about three weeks, which is crazy. Wow. So that's crash course. And we'll we'll go into more specifics later, but I thought we'd just- That sounds great. Drink some beer, talk about a little bit of the the base knowledge. Uh, So to the Baroque era. Let's do that, please. We've talked a bit about, you know, Baroque music here and some characteristics, especially when we talked about polyphony um, in one of our terms episodes, because that is a hallmark of the Baroque era. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I was comparing like the the Baroque to the era that came after. So Baroque to classical. Oh, okay. And it made like, am I wrong to say that the Baroque is more like chiseled in its texture. It's not as, it's usually not as smooth or elegant. I mean, I know that that's a big generalization, Yeah. but um, it's got more like texture, whereas like Mm -hmm. you've, like there's more flow. It's seemingly in the classical period. And I guess we should say Baroque, what, 1600s to mid 1700s? Yeah. 1600 is a good place to start with the Baroque era. And it's always, it always ends with the death of Johann Sebastian Bach in 1750 is how it's considered to be the end. Because by then his sons were doing 
some more progressive type music and and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it gets tricky to describe things like that because as you're saying, there's so many exceptions to the rule. In the Baroque era, you know, a lot of things that you can listen for that are really big triggers would be the instrumentation. And it's not just the instruments used because, of course, as we've also learned in this podcast, you can have modern orchestras playing Baroque music, and then what are you listening to? How how do you, how would you know? Yeah. Well, I would answer you would know by again which instruments are you hearing, uh, whether they're modern instruments or not. You can learn a lot from that because you know things like the trombone we've talked about. You don't hear a ton of trombone in the Baroque era, even though the trombone was around. It was really handled more in church music and things like that. So the trombone kind of had its own little home in that era. Compared to, yeah, so instruments like uh, you're paying attention to what what you're hearing and, like you said, the texture. Um, There's a lot of polyphony, which means you hear a lot of independent lines that are interacting together that work together, but you also tend to hear a lot of harpsichord. Uh, But anyway, I I chose that we should listen to music of a Baroque composer from the UK. He's a British fella named Henry Purcell. And he was born in 1659, and he did not live very long. He died in 1695. And Purcell wrote a lot of church music. Uh, This would have been Church of England times. Reformations have happened by now. But all these composers double-dipped and would write masses and stuff too. So Purcell also very much into opera and stage music. And so we're going to listen to the overture to one of his kind of semi-operas, called the Fairy Queen, and you'll hear these instruments in there. You're going to hear harpsichord. Here's a little Henry Purcell. And to, and to re- like, just a quick snippet before we start listening to Sir Purcell, the reason why, you know, I feel like when you and I started talking originally about this episode, um, I think that it's, I, I don't know how many people, when they listen to a classical music station, when they hear the words like, yes, and this is very common in the Baroque period or the classical period or the Romantic period, I think a lot of individuals may not know a the time frame but right. be what to listen for so right. it's more to have what those words sort of signify under our belts just like what what to expect when you buy a lager what do you expect when mm-hmm. you buy an ale and then of course you you can distill down or extrapolate there's a lot of other things right. that can happen yep. same with these eras but just to give a general idea yeah. of what to listen for yeah and when we do more of these episodes, we're going to go more deeper cuts into all this stuff. Just Because, I mean, of course, it's not just, first of all, in the Baroque era, instrumental music came into its own. So in the Renaissance, which lasted quite a long time, uh, it was all choral music. Everything's choral music. Almost everything's a cappella, you know, no, which means no accompaniment. It's just voices singing. Uh, you know, that all changes in the Baroque era. So you get like instrumental suites and stuff, mm-hmm. and that's unusual. So in any event... And not to mention that opera is invented in the Baroque era and is a huge deal. So there's all these different paths of music you can follow. Yeah. But they all share, you know, characteristics and harmony and, and stuff like that. So here's a little bit of Henry Purcell, The Fairy Queen. would all be valveless, valveless brass instruments. Okay. You hear that harpsichord in the background? ER's in heaven right now. Yeah. <laughs> Love me my harpsichord. 
It's also quite a bit of repetition. And Is there a correlation with Baroque and the idea of melody? Like there's always this m- melody, which I know there is in the classical period too, but the melodies are, I mean, this just seems so like uh, very poignant, very... Um, Complex? As well, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it is fun to kind of hear brass in there because it's a good reminder that, <clears throat> that yes, there were trumpets in the Baroque era. There were horns in the Baroque era, but they have a very stylized way. There's no chromaticism in there because they kind of can't, they kind of can do that and they kind of can't do that because of the way the instruments are built. And, you know, if you were to hear a modern orchestra play that, you your clues would be, you know, the harmonic pattern, the kind of busyness of the texture, uh, you know, obviously the harpsichord, although we do hear harpsichord in early classical works, so that can get confusing. Um, but but yeah, those are those are some of the giveaways. I mean, really, a harpsichord is almost a dead ringer for the Baroque, almost. Well, and just how it, how it, the whole, like when we listen to Rameau, you know, the time yeah. that we listened, it was just the time that we featured that in in one of our earlier episodes, just how that that sounds just so like, and I know it's not all with that sort of dancey, prancy yeah. rhythm, yeah. but I feel like when I hear that and I hear the harpsichord together, I it's like a dead ringer in my... Yeah, yeah. yep, yep, that's huge. And then, I mean, there are many other hallmarks of the Baroque era that we'll talk about in the future, um, just to kind of tease you, we'll talk in future episodes about ornamentation, uh, and we'll also talk about vocal music in the Baroque era because it is drastically different than uh, the music in the classical era. So those are some things for future episodes, just so you know that we're not leaving those things out for Teaser. Now. Spoiler alert. <laughs> just a little teaser. So, Well, so if we, if we go back over to loggers for a short bit, one thing I wanted to point out was that, so when we say a logger, think of pilsners, think of... Um, Gosh, I'm trying to think of other types of loggers without getting too complex. But, um, like, for example, Oktoberfest was a logger, and nowadays people are making it as an ale, which can still hmm. taste great. Okay. But um, a logger doesn't necessarily mean it needs to have this like pale gold color, and it it doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be. It usually is like in this four to six percent alcohol range. Okay. But it doesn't mean it can't be like multi. So like um, there are certain styles of German beer that have a little higher alcohol, they're dark in color, and they're but they're actually a lager because they've been aged for a while, because they've fermented at cooler temperatures. And so when we smell these, like, so give that a little smell again before we go to the next one. Yep. So these lager yeast strands, they produce like sulfur compounds mm-hmm. that when you smell it, it smells a little bit like rotten eggs and sulfur. A little bit. Whereas yeah. like the ales usually don't give that off and that's the yeast. Oh. Like usually ales will give off like different kind of wilder 
esters. Okay. Um, but I wanted to bring this because this is from one of my favorite producers of beer of all time. If I could live with one, oh, I hesitate to say, one German producer till the end of time, it would be Einger. Ooh. Um, you said it. I know. I, but I kind of, I mean it like 90% of, because <laughs> there's so many good Kolsch's and there's so, so many good alt beers and there's so many like great little hidden gems. But so I brought this Einger uh, Marzen beer, which is the same thing as Oktoberfest, because Marzen beer was brewed in March lagered all summer, so stored, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then it was released in October to drink. And as you can see, the color is quite a bit more yeah, like of a copper, a copper yeah. hue. If we had like, you know, if the light were on top of us, we'd see yeah. like, that's like very typical of an Oktoberfest. Yep. But when you drink it, you're going to smell those malts. It's going to smell like cereal water. Whoa. But it doesn't smell like super yeasty. You don't smell wild clovey or banana-y or... Um, no, it smells like the malt. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. And so Einger, they've been also brewing beer for uh, a really long time. This has been like in their recipe repertoire for, I want to say, a century or more. I'm sure it's been like tinkered with, but mm -hmm. people say that this recipe has really not been adulterating quite some time. Yeah, give it a taste. Okay. And notice how light. It's not a heavy beer. It's malty. Yeah, it's malty. But, but it's not heavy. Yeah. If there is, I was going to say, not even world class. Like, this is the best Oktoberfest. I, I will just say it. Nice. So I, I brought this because I wanted to show that lagers are not yeast-driven in terms of we're usually smelling more malt. Okay. We're usually feeling more malt and hop on the on the palate. Okay. But we're not smelling yeast so much. But lagers in general are a lighter, medium-bodied style of beer. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Hashtag all day. <laughs> not fugue me, mother fugers. Einger <laughs> me, mother angers. <laughs> <laughs> So Einger is located outside of Munich um, in Bavaria in the town of Eing, which is where they get their name. What do you think? I think it's great. So now compare that to this little guy. Save some though for the ales. So different. Do you notice how hoppy, they're different hop presents? Yeah, yeah. Like taste this and notice like this is a damn, the Einger mm -hmm. is a damn hoppy beer. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it needs to be hoppy enough to balance those malts. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily yeah. need to be aromatic, grapefruity, citrusy, all that. It just needs to have yeah. enough malt to carry all that. Yeah. Oh, so delicious. Yeah, it's delicious. Do you have a uh, preference in the two, even though they're both very different? Not yet. Okay. That sounds great. <laughs> all right. Well, let's jump to the classical era, shall we? Okay. Please. Well, things slow way down here in, in a lot of ways. And basically, in the Baroque era, which we just talked about moments ago, the baseline was super active a lot of the time. So in in the classical era, the role of the bass adapts. And instead of there being 
a really active bass line and tenor line and alto line and soprano line and all these voices having these independent lines but interacting together, it goes into a much more homophonic texture, meaning melodies in the right hand, harmonies in the left hand, and the bass is really just supporting what's going on with melody. And we're talking mid-1700s to mid-1800s? No, kinda- no. This is a, a classical era goes by in a flash. So we're talking 1750 to about 1800. Okay. Maybe the, you, can, you can push it, but things started changing rapidly in the early 1800s. And so, you know, maybe by 1820, then we're firmly into the Romantic era. Yeah. But, you know, the classical era really just, you can blink and it's gone, which Whoa. is shocking. But I think, I think a lot of that was due to how there were just, um, uh, it was just a different time. It was just a different, it was very different than the Baroque era. It was less rogue than the Baroque era, a lot of rules. There were lots of rules in the Baroque era too, but just in a different way. And in the classical era, we've got... Do you mind if we, can we listen to it? Yeah. And then talk about it so yeah. people can... Yeah, let's let's hear some. This is, you know, I, it doesn't even matter. This is Joseph Haydn, the known as the father of the symphony, although that's a little bit of a stretch, but he did perfect the form. So I thought, you know, let's listen to some Haydn. So this is his 36th symphony in E flat major, uh, and just listen to how dominate, how, how the violins just dominate the melody and just really kind of are in control, they're in the lead. It sounds like less, like it sounds more um, like a, it's more suave and it's like refined. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the violins are carrying the load and the harmony doesn't change very quickly. We stay in a chord for a while. You know what, you know what I mean? Uh And in, in the Baroque era, they're, their implied harmonic progressions going all the time because of the fast-moving independent lines. And so there's, it, it just seems, it can seem like a slower pace sometimes when you listen to classical mu- hmm. era music compared to Baroque era music. What do you, do you know who started that? Like who, who was the first one to write or to, to compose something of this nature to be performed? Well, Well, there were composers, you know, before Haydn, uh, some of the early symphonists were composers like Stamitz or Sammartini. children, uh, particularly his youngest son, Johann Christian Bach, wrote a bunch of symphonies. He's known as the London Bach. (laughs) 
Anna Bach's uh, other sons, uh, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, who, by the way, whose godfather was Georg Philip Telemann, and that's how Carl Philip Emanuel Bach got his name, the Philip part. C.P.E. Bach, as he's more colloquially known, really was, um, I hate using the word instrumental, but it's a good word, in bridging the gap between the classical era and the Baroque era. Uh, and there was this super brief period of time, and this is quite a tangent, so we're not going to get too much into it, but there was this super brief period of time between those two areas, eras uh, where composers wrote in a style called emphinzumkite, which is like really emotional, kind of turbulent music with a lot of stops and starts. So it Sounds wasn't like my this. life. Can I, someone make me a t-shirt with that word on it, please? <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't like, you know, this like chugging along Baroque music where it's just like, it'd be like, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was like really, and that kind of like, in my opinion, almost kind of shook composers into a different style. Okay. You know what I mean? And you can hear especially in some of C.P.E. Bach's keyboard works, well, and in his symphonic music, maybe less so, but I find it really in, really strong in his keyboard works. You hear the beginnings of some of those classical-style keyboard sonatas that you hear from you know, composers like Muzio Clementi, who then inspired Mozart and Beethoven and Czerny and all the pianists after. You know, so it's, it's really kind of fun to hear those seedlings in some of the Bach children's music. You know, just like with the Baroque, there there are many different, very important things happening in the classical era. You know, the keyboard is, you know, the piano is coming into its own as an instrument, and they keep adding more keys, and that affects how the music is written. And those are things we'll get into when we do the deeper cuts. Do you think? Do you think at the end of the episode, once we sign off, can we have just a snippet of Baroque, a snippet of classical, a snippet of romantic? Because I think it's it's um, it's Cool to hear them back. Hundred percent. So we love it. Yeah. So ail me. I will ail you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So ale um, ales have been produced, like I said, since the beginning of consumption of things that were like beer. Yeah. Um, in the fact that we didn't have refrigeration and we didn't have knowledge of yeast, so yeasts were top fermenting. Um, things kind of grew on the surface area of whether it was grains floating in in water, a porridge of sorts you name it, it was ambient yeasts that were around that were infecting a beer. And we know that when something happens at a warmer temperature, but also it, 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 and it being faster, you're getting more esters out of it. Think of just like how much you sweat if you 
burst out in a huge sprint for down yeah. your block versus like running nice and calm and slow. Yeah. So um, they they tend to possess more wild aromatics and some are more restrained than others. It kind of depends. But um, the color of your beer has nothing to do with whether it's a lager or an ale. So some okay. people are like, I want a dark beer because it's full bodied or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, the dark beer just will signify that they've taken your grains and they've roasted it to your to that color preference. And then they're making the cereal water that beautiful color and then they're making beer out of it. So you can have a they can have a three or four percent alcohol dark beer, or you yeah. can have a let's say commercially, I mean there are examples of stupid beers out there that are like fifty percent alcohol or whatever. Sure. But like you know, you can get 12% alcohol dark beers as well. Mm-hmm. But so, one of the things, if I may interject momentarily, that I've learned from you is that Guinness, for instance, is a light dark beer. Correct. Yeah. There's, which I'm like, I didn't even know that existed. But yeah. I want to say that it's less than 5% alcohol, and I want to say, it might, or it might be slightly above that, and mm-hmm. I want to say that it has less than, you know, it's like the caloric content of Guinness is actually very low. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. So yeah. drink your Guinness, people that are on yep. a diet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so when we talk about ales, we talk about yes, they can obviously be hop forward if it's an IPA, um, and it could be malt forward as well. But they are more than more often than not, if it's not one of those like hyper popular styles of beer, yeah, you're gonna get this nuance of yeast, and beer professionals or judges will know that like straight away. Okay. So I brought something that is a similar color to the Einger Oktoberfest or Marzen because I wanted to show how color doesn't matter. Okay. But this is the quintessential, like this is the pale ale that beer connoisseurs would think this is like A grade typical. That's what it's this supposed is, this to be. This, this is blueprint. Yep. Before, before pale ales got kind of nice and overly hoppy and verged on IPA, you had... So this, so this is in English. I'm pouring a Fuller's uh, London Pride, which um, I don't want to say it's not artisanal. I mean, they make a good amount of beer, but their recipe has been around for a, a good long while. They've been making beer again since the 1800s, I believe. I have it in my notes. But So check out the color. Wow, I mean, it's very it's, light. Very it's, coppery, kind of orange, almost almost Oktoberfest color. Yeah, but yeah. not as light as the Pilsner. No, 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 definitely it's, not. It's definitely like in that vein yep. of like, yeah. I mean, actually, our Oktoberfest is slightly darker yeah. than the Fuller's. So yep. give... It's like the amber in Jurassic Park. So give the Oktoberfest a quick... Wow, okay, all so I can smell is that malt now. Okay. Now taste the Fuller's. Smell the Fuller's first. And what do you smell? It doesn't smell anything like that at all. What does it smell like? Uh, I'm not sure. It just doesn't smell like that. But do you smell that it kind of, um, it, yes, it smells like malt a little bit, but it, it smells kind of like sandstone. It's and more it kind perfumey. of perfumey. So that perfumey? Yes, ER. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Per- I love it when I get one right for once. <laughs> So that perfumey nature is definitely the yeast talking, um, uh, for sure. So um, this guy, these guys have been producing uh, London Pride, so this beer, since the 1950s, but they've been making beer since the mid-1800s, and they're using all British hops, which is really cool. Like, yeah. You know, for a, for a producer that's making kind of a lot of beer. Yeah, what do you wait, think? Wait. 
What do you think about the palate? Tell me again. What what is this kind of beer? So this is this is this a, is an IPA. No, no. Okay, my this bad. This is a true pale ale. A pale ale, which is different than an India pale ale. Correct. It's going to have less hops. Okay. And it's going to be. I have to get two beers per session because I feel like ER just like goes. <laughs> well, you got to get a good old drink of beer. You know, you can't just have like a sip like with wine. Like, or you, I feel or you like, can. <laughs> I feel like with wine, I can take a sip and get the a fuller picture than I can with. I feel like with beer, I got to take a big old gulp. No, on the you palate, don't, you don't know me. On the, <laughs> <laughs> on the palate, though, what do you? It tastes like almost floral. Yeah, that's delicious. So this is like. This and do you notice though? There's hop on the finish. Like yeah, it's but a it's not. Bitter. It's not as bitter as the pilsner. Correct. And mm-hmm. is it as bitter as an IPA? No, God no. No. Yeah. So this is like it's got enough hops to balance those beautiful malts, but that that little bit of floral, that little like you can still kind of yeah taste. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's the yeast talking. Interesting. And that's like hello yeast. <laughs> How are you today? <laughs> oh, Oktoberfest now. All right, now we're... Anger. Yeah, it's just malt. Yeah. Malt and hops. I won't want to say one-dimensional because of the fact that it's... Um, it's a, Obviously, the Oktoberfest is an incredibly well-done beer. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. But it's the great. element of the yeast sort of... It doesn't really... It doesn't, like, scream... Yeah. It doesn't compete with the other elements. Yeah. We just have massive amounts of glassware and bottles. We do. Welcome to Scores and Pours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we only have one bottle left. It's true. But I just wanted to I wanted to reiterate. So we have top fermenting yeast, warmer temperatures. Someone pointed out to me that because the ales are top fermenting, and this was like decades ago and I was just starting to get into beer, they were like, we were having a conversation back and forth and they were like, well, think about it this way. I mean, like these top fermenting Yeasts are exposed, not only are they faster fermentation, but like they're exposed to, in some cases, exposed to the elements. Now, that's not really the case anymore because people are making cleaner brews than ever before. But like there was a time where yeast, you know, people didn't know to like cover up their ferments, you know. And so they were exposed to the elements and you get these wild esters and crazy aromas, likely some sour, sour qualities as well. And so if you're having a hard time getting your mind around it, just think of that aspect as well as like there was a time where they had access to these ambient fermentation elements and that yeah. that likely created. That also created like when we think about the type of yeast, there's so many different yeasts nowadays that brewers have access to to make lagers and ales. Okay. And these have all been selected from ferments. You know, uh-huh. like the fact that you can go to, you know, Northern Brewer here in Minneapolis and you have hundreds of yeast to choose from, it's because there are so many different strands of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the Saccharomyces, I think it's called Pastorianus or something like that, that's like the one of the lager yeasts. And so, wow. but there's so many different little, like substrains that mm-hmm. get you to different results, mm-hmm. different aromatics that, awesome. So... All these home brewers out there. Oh God! I know. <laughs> I don't. I love. I no, have great friends of mine make beer. Yeah, but, no, but. make it great. Uh, they're they all decide from the get go. Am I making an ale or am I making the other one? They all decide that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Dope. 
Dope. (laughs) (laughs) If we think of the Baroque era as a series of rules based on harmony, which in many ways it was, and if we think about the classical era as an era dominated by the rules of form, which in many ways it was. I'm a genius. I'm just coming up with this shit right now. This is genius. And I'm also thinking like, and if you were to say that to me, I would say the Baroque era is this era of like melody, but all these very complex textures and complex Mm -hmm. melodies Mm -hmm. happening at once. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say the classical era is exactly what you said, but the less complex thing to say, (laughs) elegant, smoother. There's more of a separation of roles. Yeah. You have like... The bass taken kind of this. Yeah, bass does yeah. does its supporting thing. You know, all yeah, kinds of stuff. So I was just throwing that in there. So for, lame, for about, the layman's out yeah, there. So we talk about the rules that kind of kind of uh, govern both of those eras. We can think of the Romantic era as the gradual, for the most part, sometimes rather sudden, uh, disassembly of those rules. So composers are like. Yeah, I know that the you know the symphony is supposed to be about fifteen minutes, but what if I wrote an hour long symphony <laughs> instead? Or, you know, things along those lines. Yeah, I know that a five chord is supposed to go to a one chord, but what if I make a five chord go here instead, or whatever? You know, what if I? What if this? What if that? And so, isn't it so like the whole what if? What if? It's yeah. almost like millennial in its fashion because it's like <laughs> what if, and then it's really emotional. It's yeah. kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> is that like yes safe? okay <laughs> yes so i mean obviously one of the just absolute uh, important parts of the romantic era is just the word itself romantic so yes melodies get really sappy and i mean that's a harsh word but you know what i mean just things are very emotional and we've been re- through the enlightenment now we're all about you know let's better ourselves through music and and aren't they also very like intense in a way that like um, Well yeah, and at this point they're all making a good living too. So this isn't like the old days where they're like indentured servants basically. So, you know, they're like upper crust of society, they're having salons and having chamber music nights and it's just an elongation of of everything that came before it, you know, in in a lot of ways. Um, And things that happen in the Romantic era that we'll talk about later down the road, things like uh, nationalism becomes a thing. So you start to hear not just this music in basically a German tradition, but you start to hear Norwegian music and Russian music and Spanish music. And you know what I mean? Classical like music. Like we're able to decipher an identity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Based off of location and nationalism, which is really cool. So that happens much later, though. Like That's Spaniards. Late like, like the Spanish emotional <laughs> and the yeah. Russian like, dot, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah, okay. Or yeah. the Norwegian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as, you know, choral music, opera is still a thing. People are still writing masses and requiems and Catholic music and Protestant music. All that's still happening. And I chose a a really fun example from the Romantic era. And even just the way this piece starts, just right away, you'd be like, well, this is a romantic piece because, first of all, you hear tuba playing a melodic role right off the bat, which, 
you're just not going to hear in the Baroque era, the classic. You're just not. So it, it's um, you hear all the brass, and you're going to hear a wide dynamic range. You can just tell by listening that this is a big orchestra, much bigger than what you would imagine. You know, so orchestras get bigger. The piano has more keys. You know, everything is bigger and longer and louder and stronger. So in any event, this is the first movement of a wonderful piece by a Russian composer named Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. And this is his very famous Scheherazade, which is, of course, the tale of... Uh, um, the Arabian Nights, the uh, woman who's betrothed and... 1,001 nights, you know, depending on the... She's got to tell the story every night to save her life, basically. So, uh, any event, here's the opening of Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. And again, you just aren't going to hear anything like this until we get to the 1800s. And the first movement is dubbed The Sea and Sinbad's Ship. Correct. Correct? Sweet. All right, here we go. Let's do it, Nikolai. Let's hear some tuba. One of the things, too, that I love about this piece is that you'll recall in our episode about Turkish music, we talked about some of the instruments that uh, were inspired by Turkish music or gravitated to the West from Turkish music. And when you listen to this piece, you hear, and granted, he's talking about Arabia, so there are influences there that he's trying to imply in the first place. But by this point in the orchestra, the timpani is just there all the time. It's just mm -hmm. a part of the band. And it never was in the 18th century. What so, about, What about the rhythm? Like, I feel like rhythm fluctuates more. This is, is it true that rhythm fluctuates more in the in a, in a one movement Yeah, more than it yeah. would in a movement in the classical era? Yeah, and we call this rubato. R-U-B-A-T-O, rubato. So this is like the, the push and pull of tempo. as It doesn't have to be exactly on all the time. So there's there's a flux to it as and it's for emotional purposes, mm -hmm. right? So you hear this this epic orchestra playing this melody. So you mean the next time my my mother gets all emotional, I'll be like, "Mom, take your rubato." And 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Got you. Love you, Mom. Love you long time. You're, okay. Yes. But um, there are a couple of spots I really wanted to to listen to for sure. Um, so we're hearing modern instruments here. There's definitely no harpsichord in here. But we do hear there's harp in here. That's not a big piece. Even though that instrument's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, again, it's not a mainstay in the orchestra until we get to the Romantic era. And then you're going to see more harp pop up. Sometimes you'll see two of them in the orchestra. The other thing that we're hearing is we're hearing kind of an otherworldly harmonic experience here. This isn't, you know, there are some, I would say, ethnic quote-unquote inflections in the harmony that are idiosyncratic of the Romantic era to be using those kind of almost like culturally appropriating some harmonies for musical effect. Yeah. Just, I, also, uh, I also think it's um, maybe easier for folks to think about like impressionistic painting, how it was like some of it was somewhat, it was honestly a very awesome technique, but then it was somewhat suggestive, like what it is, but yeah. yet you, when you look at it from far away, maybe you can get it, but if you're close, you don't. Yeah. Um, and so it seems like when they call it this, or we've talked about, um, you know, Debussy, when we we were mentioning, we had like an awesome um, work that we listened to that evoked the sea. It's mm-hmm. like, well, how do we know it's the sea? Because he's not playing by rules that other people played by when they talked yeah. about water. Well, and that piece wasn't written that much longer after this one. This was 1888. Mm-hmm. So we're we're really kind of in, in this time where really everyone in the world is going their own way, Yeah, which is why the modern era gets really complex and why we'll be talking about it later. But the other thing I want to say is you mentioned how tempo is kind of – there's this push and pull to the tempo, but there's also uh, – harmonically speaking, we're we're doing what's called modulating just constantly. We're constantly going into a different key temporarily. And that's something that didn't happen often at all in the classical era either. Um, we're like, we'll just spend a half a minute in A major, then maybe we'll be in E major, then maybe we'll be in B major for a minute, then maybe we'll be in F sharp, and then maybe we'll go back to G or so, you know, and just for these snippets in time, we're just... And part of that, too, is because instruments were able to play in a Mm. fully chromatic way, which they couldn't do in earlier eras, really. So it's just, you know, the music changes as a result of the instruments developing. I mean, that's a huge part of it. But this... I mean, this right now with the horns just blasting away and the fury of the strings, I mean, it's so not anything but the Romantic era. I mean, it's just too big. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's no way this could be the classical era. lastly um, an ale of all ales and I don't say that this is necessarily the best ale okay but it's dark but it's got a lot of yeast character it's a Belgian double or dual I, I say double but and it is from a Trappist monastery called Westmall they're located east of Antwerp and north of Brussels so quite quite far north in Belgium 
and they have it's got a ton of phenolics of yeast and one thing about these strands of yeast and granted it depends of course on how much malt you add available sugars are you adding adding any candy sugar any m- more available sugars for your yeast to feed on to make a higher alcohol level but there literally are um like longer chain, they can produce, there are certain strains of yeast that can produce like longer chain alcohols okay. available. It's it's kind of gets complex, but so there's there are a couple different reasons why we can have like these higher alcohol beers. Yeah. So this isn't too high. It's 7%. Oh. But it's heavier, malty, okay. dark, and very yeast forward. And I'd be surprised if it doesn't start to blow up. We'll just see. Nope. Sometimes Westmall does on me. Okay. Wow. I think when a lot of people want an ale, they want something <laughs> this color, you know, especially they're like, oh, just pour wow. me an ale. You're like, okay. Yeah, so that's dark. Belgian beers are known for having like, um, if they're made in this ale, this monastic <laughs> style, they can have like a really beautiful head on them. Yes, that um, is the case here. But just, just smell this and tell me what it smells like. That one also smells like clean laundry almost. Oh, okay. Like lots of different <laughs> like f- like floral perfumey yeah. kind of things. Yeah, with a touch of beer in it. I smell like a lot of those a lot of those esters for sure. Yeah. But there's some like um fresh like maybe not lemon balm but like fresh oregano. I get like certain um I get like some herby qualities to this. Maybe a little cilantro too. Um, Weird. So this beer has this recipe's been tw- like tinkered with a little bit, but since about the 1920s, it's been the same. Um, yeah, and as as you kind of give it a swirl, like I like to swirl my Belgian. I like to swirl beer anyway, but when you, as you give it a swirl, you'll notice kind of some chocolatey esters, like milk chocolate esters. Sure. Obviously, that's coming from some of the grains. But um, can I taste it, please? Whoa. It's almost so, like candy. I'm not kidding you. There's like a just really sugary, sweet kind of punch that you get right off the bat, which is quite delicious. So they're adding a little bit of candy sugar, some sort of sugar at the f- to finish the second fermentation in the bottle. Okay. So this has been made like champagne has been made. Oh. They've put beer. In a bottle. In a bottle. With some sugar and yeast. Fermented in there. And they fermented in the bottle. Now, is Um, that just their style of doing it, or is that how this is? Okay, that's their Trappist. Yep, not all ales are done that way. Not even all Trappist ales are done that way. Co. Ooh. Um... Oh, you, that's a good question. I would say, did I, I would stump say, Jill Mott? I would say if I think of <laughs> Rochefort, if I think of Orval, if I think of Westmall, if I think of Zundert, which is the newest that is in Netherlands, if I think of Koningshoven, which is also in the Netherlands, if I think of Spencer, which they make a ton of beer, so we have to just think about, uh, let's say Spencer aside, Man, I would say the majority of Trappist beers I've tasted do have a second fermentation in bottle. In Not bottle. all of them, but most of them okay. do. Yep. So they add sugars to get that second fermentation. A sugar, a rolling, a sugar and a yeast. Yep. Okay. Now smell it after. Is it's the sugar the food for the yeast? Correct. Yep. 
But so doesn't that smell like pretty lovely? You know, in West Mall, it's not necessarily like my favorite Trappist ale, but it's yeast smell. It smells like yeast. It's very like uh, yeast for it, especially we're tasting it at um, a little bit cooler than cellar temperature. So it's not straight out of the fridge, which would kill the beer. Honestly, you wouldn't really smell much. Um, but it kind of smells like rose hips or something. There's like something floral yeah. about it that's a little way more intense than the London Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very, mm. very characteristic. I'm of, surprised how much I enjoy that. And this is great. Like it's granted you'll fill up, but this is like really great with certain foods. Um, but this is to show how now go back and taste, smell that. Right. The Pilsner Urquell. It kind of smells like nothing. Kind of smells yeah. like matchsticks and eggs yeah. and, and awesome Awesome malt. Yeah, it just tastes malty now. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that's like cleanse the palate, but yeah, <laughs> yeah it doesn't really, you know, yeah. it's, it's sort of like if you were to have a undressed lettuce leaf after <laughs> you had a, a, an entire ribeye, you'd yeah. be like, well, that's kind of refreshing because I <laughs> know it should be, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, you won't be asking for seconds. So usually get more yeast action, yeast aromas, yeast influence out of ales. Not always, but a lot of times. And do you notice how hoppy? That's West Mall yeah. Double is so damn hoppy, and people don't think so because they think it has to be an IPA to be hoppy. But in order to balance this much malt and alcohol, yeah. just watch how long your mouth is bitter. Yeah. Like A while. Yeah, just wait. Because <laughs> you just swallow. It'll stay this way for like a good 20 yeah. seconds, which is awesome. It's amazing. So, that's what I got for this edition of Scores and Pours, Ales and Lagers. I'm I'm pretty tapped out as well with just blasting through three eras of classical music. Let's I, go drink. I love it. Let's go drink some beer. Cheers. We are to Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. Thank you for listening to episode 23 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours and Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Beers, laggers. Laggers. <laughs> Loggers. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want me to say those last two words? No.